0: One of the things you notice as you read the Bible and you read about the way the Bible talks about preaching is that the expectation, biblically, is that preaching doesn't just give your mind information but pierces your heart and changes your life. And um, that is very much God's intention. The Bible says about God's word that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so as we look at the Bible today, I want you to be in a place of expectation that you'll be cut in some way, by what God says. And it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But the idea is is that rather than just going out with a few more boxes ticked, a little bit more information that you have, but instead you go out with a sense of having encountered God, having heard God's word into your life, into your current situation, and working out ways of applying that and just having that sense of it being more than simply a lecture or information. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would do that in our hearts and, and help us to receive well what he says. So, Father, just thank you for the gift of preaching. Um, thank you that it's always been out of date, Lord. You, you love to choose foolish means deliberately. It's all part of your plan. And so it's not about whether or not it's uh, in date or relevant, Lord, but we know that it's life-changing. And all of us here can testify to having our lives changed by your word, Lord God. And I pray that today will be another one of those days that we would encounter you in your word. Please let us encounter you. We need to encounter you again and again. We need to go on being filled with the Spirit. Lord, we, we are we are jars of clay, we are cracked jars of clay and very often, Lord, there's, a, there's just a lot of spilling that goes on and we need constantly to be filled with you, with your truth, with a sense of your presence. Help us, Lord, because each of us face situations that we find perplexing and we don't know how to respond to and we just think, God, we need wisdom, we need to know your nearness in our lives. We need, Lord, you are, you are our inspiration, Lord. We, I pray, God, just come and Unvow, unveil the glory of Jesus in a fresh way to our hearts, by the Spirit. I pray, I ask it earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been working through um, a book called One Peter. The reason it's called that is because the Apostle Peter wrote it. And it's the first letter that um, he wrote. He wrote two that have been recorded in Scripture. And this is the first one. He's writing to um, uh, people that have become Christians out of a background of um, being completely uh, non-Christian. So maybe you're here today and you're, you're a Christian, but your background is Christian, so maybe you got brought up as a Christian. Well, what you've got to remember is in the early days of the church, there was none of that. No one had been brought up a Christian. No one had had a foundation of s- sort of lessons about Jesus, you know, multiplying bread and fish as they were kids. That was totally unknown. Everyone who knew Jesus had just come to know him in a fresh way. And these people, it seems, had been, um, they weren't Jewish converts, they were Gentile converts. So they'd been around the Jewish religion in some way, but they were Gentiles. And so they didn't have the Old Testament history, it wasn't part of them. They didn't have the promises, the the covenant seal, the circumcision, any of that. But they'd been wonderfully saved and then scattered throughout five Roman provinces, which Peter mentions at the start. And um, they were huge provinces which basically make up the area of modern day Turkey. And that's who Peter's writing to. And there are people under pressure. There are people that are being opposed in the main for their faith. So not only are they facing the challenges of being um, in a different culture or society to what they're used to, in some ways you could, you could um, align them to a, a asylum seekers or um, immigrants, they're, they don't, they're in a place where they don't belong, they're not in their natural home, they're not used to the culture, but not only that, in the effort to want to fit in, which I'm sure everyone does who moves to a new culture, actually, they can't. So they can, but they can't, because there are certain things people do in those days, that as Christians they couldn't do, what they chose not to do. So it was very very common to um, have feasts dedicated to gods and idols, and that was the main kind of social thing that happened. Feasts would be dedicated to false gods. They wouldn't do that. Orgies were commonplace. Drunken orgies, commonplace. That was the way. That was a very popular pastime. They wouldn't do that. And so not only are they out of place socially and geographically, they're totally out of place spiritually. They're they're, they're not able to, you know, and they're being opposed and persecuted. Some of them wouldn't have been able to find jobs because of certain things they would say, I'm not going to do that. And so because if they wouldn't compromise, they would either not get promotion or wouldn't get jobs. They're in a tight corner. It's around the time that uh, Nero is the emperor and persecution is beginning beginning to become fierce. And so Peter writes to them to strengthen them he writes to them to, to really give them instruction on how to shine the Jesus light in a dark world. So relevant. So, so relevant. If you're a Christian here today, so relevant. How do you radiate Christ's light in a way that is strikingly relevant and yet so at odds with the way the world around you works? How do you do it? Well, there's loads in here. Peter talks about church life, home life, work life and we're going to work through the, the, the book all the way really and, and get to grips and grapple with what it means what does it mean when he talks about slaves and masters husbands and wives how does that look how do you shine the light of Jesus that's where we're going to be going now so far we've discovered that Peter's wants to start and he doesn't really get into any of this this is how to live until he's looked at God that's not coincidental that is the order of the Christian life you've got to constantly lift your head to see who God is what God's done only from there can you find inspiration and strength to actually apply the Christian lifestyle, which is hugely countercultural. If you've not seen him, forget it. You're not going to do it. You're going to run out of resources halfway around the track, guarantee it. If you haven't experienced that before, you will at some point. our our resources are incredibly limited compared to his and so Peter constantly says now lift your head listen you've been born again by God God broke into your life. God's got hold of you. God's called you. And he really just starts there and really, to be honest, even though he starts there and then he moves on to how to live life, even when he gets on to how to live life, he's constantly coming in with the gospel. Again, again, again. So not only is it the foundation, it's the saturating liquid of everything, right? So not just the gospel is the foundation. Then as you live, keep remembering the gospel. Keep remembering. Here it comes again, the blood of Christ. Remember last week, he's done all this stuff about living holy lives and he says, remember, because you haven't been ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And you'll see it again today in the passage that we look at. We're just looking at two verses today. But the good thing about working through a book is this. You get to discover, in an accurate way, what were the priorities of the people who wrote the Bible, therefore what are God's priorities. Now this is very important, here's why. If you're anything like me, you tend to have your favourite bits of the Bible and your little hobby horses. Yeah? Yeah? Stuck for a verse, you'd always go to your favourite, yeah. Anyone? Is it just me? You know, you're not doing anything systematic, so you go to you go to you go to John. Yeah, I got John. Yeah, it's default John autopilot. The problem with that, what can happen is this: you can begin, you can begin to really just have these classic passages that you like and touch all your buttons, and then you can begin to think, this is the whole council of God. This is all that God's about. So you hear people say things like this, Christianity is all about caring for the poor. It's what it's about. And then someone says, no, 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 no. Christianity is all about God prospering us. And then someone says, no. Christianity is all about the miraculous. And they'll pull out 10 verses. And then someone says, no, no, no. Christianity is all about equipping us for warfare. Haven't you read Ephesians 6? And so, no, no, come on, it's all about love and, haven't you read 1 John? and it's like, you can just have your if you don't go through something systematically and in a an general way, you tend to just have your little, your little, your little bees in your bonnet the things that's, that feed what you're buzzing with Yeah, and you can think, that's, that's what God, that's God's heart and anyone that doesn't really centralise that thing for you, they've missed the point listen, the beauty of working through something systematically is you see, oh, this really was their priority you see it again and again and again what is the priority of the New Testament? the Gospel Without a doubt. It is the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Without a doubt. And they nail it again and again and again. It's the starting point and it's a huge, huge thing. We're going to look at the gospel. It's not just the gospel for the lost. It's the gospel for believers. This is massive. So many believers say, I've never heard that. Come on, let's get on to the meat. That is the meat. The gospel is the meat. (laughs) You don't move on from the gospel. You move on from the gospel, you've been deceived. Simple as that. Now, you plumb the depths of the gospel, of course you do. You don't just you know, it's not just your ABC, but you plumb the depths, but it's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole of the book of Colossians was written to a group of people who had moved away from the gospel and they got on to other visions and dreams. Now, visions and dreams are good. But if they're not Christ-centered, don't want to know about it. Yeah? And Paul brings them back to Jesus constantly. Now you're rooted in Christ, now be built up in him. Started with him, ends in him. Hallelujah. It's wonderful. We love Jesus. So, you begin to understand what apostolic priorities. is. This is what was the priority to the apostles that God ordained to give us the scriptures. So we see that the gospel is about God's nature, God's heart, God's activity, and it all brings him glory. It all comes back to him. His actions in sending his son, the amazing birth, the virgin birth of the son, central to the gospel. The life of the son, central to the gospel. Don't just skip to the virgin birth to the death, no, the life. What was he like? What was he like? Because he's so human. And if you miss the life, you tend to get this floaty Christianity. You know, this kind of thing. Well, you know Someone's talking about the food they enjoy, and they're like, well, yes, but let's move on to spiritual matters, brother. You know, as if kind of like, we don't, we don't do that, you know. Or, you know, just things, things that are day-to-day. And people develop an aloof kind of thing. Well, we, uh, can we talk quiet times, please? Listen, Jesus was a man. He was a man. He was fully God. Fully man. Don't ask me to explain it, but if you miss one of those, you end up with a dodgy Jesus. <laughs> He's not a real one. Yeah? He's not a real one. If you're just Jesus fully man, you just end up with this kind of social gospel thing. And all. If you end up with just, if Jesus just fully God, you miss the earthiness, the humanity. And that releases us to be fully human. And to totally go for the spiritual, but totally go for the natural. Yeah? It's all worship, it's all God. So in some ways, you know, we don't start late on a Sunday. We're worshipping over there by the table, then we move it over here. Yeah? If you're not worshipping over there... (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Uh, Internet, someone's phone just went off. That's what happened. Trying to remember the fact that people listen to this down here. Okay. So, you're worshipping over there, yeah? You can just as much worship by fellowshipping tea, coffee and toast, and then you bring it over here. Yeah? Then you go on this afternoon and guess what you do there? You worship. And then when you sleep at night, what are you doing? You're worshipping. Yeah? Say, so, Jesus, I can't. It's just wonderful. You got, you, you know, I, th- I think it's a good habit and I'm trying to invite my own life where I lie down at night and it's like, I'm now just resting in your arms. I cannot keep going. You can. Yeah? I can't think about anything anymore because even when I'm, I'm not coming up with any solutions. <laughs> but you know everything. I'm going to go to sleep. It's worship. It's worship, isn't it? It's worship. stops you worrying. You're not God. Hallelujah. You should make much of that. It's wonderful. So, So the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the glorification of Jesus and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until the return of Jesus and the consummation of all things. That's what we're about. That's the gospel. They're the essentials. And then Peter almost says, it's like right now in the light of that, live like this. That's the Christian order. That's how it works. Wayne Grudem, who's a scholar, a theologian, he says this. He says, the New Testament repeatedly assumes that imitation of God's moral character is the ultimate basis for ethics. So you want, about how, you want to know about how to live, what's right, what's wrong, or with situations perplexing, you go to God. You look at his character. How would he respond? What does he say about this? So, so an ethic that's not centred on God will, is, is, is a, a dodgy ethic. It's not got a root. The root of right and wrong in itself, the fact that we even talk about what is right and wrong, comes from the fact that God is moral. He's moral in his nature, he's moral in his character. He has said this is right and this is wrong. And sometimes we understand why. Certain things you think, yeah, I can see the sense of that. Other things you think, I don't quite know why God says that. What do you do in that situation? You come back to the fact, ultimately, even though I don't quite get it, I recognise that actually morality, right and wrong, source from his nature anyway. So if he says it, I bow the knee. It's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And if you move away from that, then you're creating your own ethic, you're becoming your own God. Idolatry. So it's very important to keep him central. That's why why it's it's an important discipline to just spend time loving him, worshipping him, filling your mind with who he is. Very important. I will be honest with you, I don't do it enough. I'm very quickly on to, God, please do this. (laughs) And I like constantly, I, 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 I don't think I've made even much ground on it, so I just want to be very honest with you. But I feel like more and more, I need to get this. And um, I sing more than I used to. <laughs> I need to get into the discipline. It's just more. Just be in his presence because he's wonderful. So let's read, um, let's read verse 20. We're just going to do verse 20 and 21 today. So, um, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. We'll stop there. I'll read it again. He was foreknown, talking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, this issue of being foreknown and then being manifested, to be honest with you, when I was first preparing this sermon, I thought, yeah, let's get on to the, something I can preach. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I don't really know what it I mean, I know what it means, but I'm sure we've covered it already. If I'm honest, I'm sure we've covered that. And you can always find yourself thinking, why are you saying it again? I'll be honest, I think, why are you saying it again? And it got me thinking, God, why are you, Peter, why are you, he's already done this. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse, um, verses 10 to 12, it talks about the prophets who prophesied about Jesus and how, as they prophesied hundreds of years before he came, they're thinking, who am I prophesying about? And they began to search into, and they discovered, oh, wow, it's for another time in the future. Oh, we're serving another generation, us who lived after Jesus. And it's, it's all done there. You think, why is he saying it again? Now, when you come up with things like that, you can do two things. You can either say, well, don't get it and move on. Or you can stop there and say, what is this? Why why go into this again? You've already made the point. Why is it such a big deal? Well, I believe this It has to do with something that was very, very important in the mind of the early church and very, very unimportant in our minds. There was something that was a huge deal to them that we hardly ever think about. And I've said this a few times, if you've been around long, sorry if I sound like a stuck record, but this is what it's about, the big story. It's about the big story. When it comes to history, the Hebrew mind is linear, okay? It works on a line. It understands that it's a story, it's a plot, it's going somewhere, it's about something, it had a beginning, there are some very important milestones on the journey and it will have a consummation that's the Hebrew mind they were obsessed with the story the plot we being affected by Darwinism are much more random and disconnected we don't think like that we have to make ourselves think like that we, we tend to see things as just kind of random in a sense um, we tend to, it predisposes us not to understand the meaning of things in a bigger scale. We tend to be much more zoned in on um, how our personal lives are affected. Yeah? We tend to see this as the plot. Yeah? I'm the plot. on the plot. Started in 1973. Who knows when it's going to end? But it's exciting. It's kind of exciting. But compared to what God's doing, it's kind of small. Okay? God started something a long time ago that basically includes everyone and everything and it's going somewhere and you really better get in on it. Otherwise, you're going to miss the story. And it's very, very liberating and very, very revolutionary for a 21st century Westerners' mind, which is zoned in almost entirely on the individual. So I think it's very important that we've got to keep digging away at this stronghold in our own minds so we can be liberated to think and understand as the Bible writers did. So let me put it differently. The believing Jews saw Jesus primarily in the context of the plot, right? That's how they saw him. (gasps) He's come! This is a massive moment in the story. This is what it was all heading up to. That's how they saw. You think of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Even when you see the Jews for Jesus, who are the uh, uh, the Messianic Jews, who do outreach on their T-shirt, it says this: "Jesus is Messiah." That's the big deal. Not Jesus is going to make your life better. Now, just notice that. Very different mindset. Revolutionarily different. Once says Jesus is Messiah, which most Londoners probably think, "What the heck are you talking about?" Agreed, but it at least demonstrate something of what they're thinking, we tend to go, come to Jesus, is going to sort everything out for you. It's a different thing. Let's dig around, let's see what we come up with. I think God wants to liberate us from the tragedy of seeing our life as the main plot. I think that the romance of the Christian life only really stands out in the context of the big story. I think the Christian life is incredibly romantic. Incredibly. Uh, just, just I mean, it's just like, it's better than Star Wars, isn't it? I mean, what a story. It's just fantastic. Whatever story you like, Lord of the Rings much better than that. It is, it's is—it's—it like, oh, oh, you follow it, you think, what's going to happen next? It's amazing. We're part of it. This is God's, it's God's story that we are part of. It's incredibly romantic. And I think you really lose that when you just get in on kind of, it's about, kind of about me and how God makes things better for me. Because he, he does. And I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be dismissive. If he does. Isn't he wonderful that he does? But actually, it's more about, let me do you good and equip you, because look, I want to bring you into something. I want to bring you into what I'm doing. It's universal. Wow, it's eternal. So, also, the the significance of the Christian life only unravels in the context of the big story. Why is it such a big deal? Well, it's more than, give your life to Jesus, it's more, sign up, sign up. There's a new king in the universe. This is the one. Sign up. Oh, this is significant. This is massive. It was, a, it was a book that came out a few years back called The Search for Significance, which wasn't a bad old book, had some truths in it, but basically zoned in on the fact that you're significant. I think, well, okay. I don't know. I mean, Job met with God, his response, behold, I'm mean, insignificant. <laughs> dearly loved. Dearly loved. But, <laughs> replaceable. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. Don't get me wrong. He doesn't, but he could. You know? And I think sometimes, sometimes with self-help, Christianity. It sounds great and kind of, in the moment, it's like oh, it's just fantastic because it kind of gets ego all going. But it doesn't really go anywhere. It's much more thrilling. What about the sacrifice of the Christian life? See, I think the sacrifice involved in the Christian life only explodes into glory in the context of the big story. Sacrifice is hard, and it, it is. But sacrifice produces passion. In friendship, in marriage, in family life, it's as you lay your life down that your love for the one you're laying your life down for grows and increases. The sacrifice involved in the Christian life. When your flesh cries out that but you know Jesus is saying that and you kill it and say, I'm gonna follow you in the context of the big story. Whoa, this is exciting. You know, I've just done Darth Vader. It's much better than just you know what I mean, oh just had to say no to that. You know, like, I've just uh, this is thrilling, exciting, wonderful, wonderful thing. So, what is the big story? It's God winning back his creation. Hallelujah. He's winning it back through Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth that have been stolen by man the rebel and Satan the usurper. God is bringing it all back so we can sit on him again and realize how wonderful he is and then say to ourselves, this is what life is about. This is it. It's the wonder and the glory of the story that God is about, God's plot. So Peter's saying that God planned this Jesus rescue from eternity, but revealed it now in these times. This is why you're starting to understand why it's such a big deal now. It's been revealed, it's happened. The thing that was promised, is happened. It's actually happened now. And the appearance of Christ is supposed to invoke a sense of wonder that we should be the privileged ones living on the other side of his appearance. And we often miss this. We live on the other side. We live on the other side. The Old Testament was marked by a sense of anticipation. I'll give us some examples. Genesis 3, God promises one will come to smash a serpent's head. Genesis 2, God provides a lamb on the mountain of sacrifice to keep Isaac from death, speaking of his provision of a lamb to, to keep us from death. Um, in the Exodus from Egypt, God, the whole Passover lamb thing, wipe the blood on your doorpost and the destroyer will pass over you. And it's, it's speaking of the blood of Christ shed for us as, we, as we, if we almost like wipe the blood of Christ on the doorpost of our hearts death can't touch us it's all pointing to the one that is coming it's very very exciting and the sacrifice of the animals for forgiveness you lay your hand on the on the, the scapegoat all points to jesus all sins go on him on the cross so that we can be forgiven freely all pointing to him the manna from heaven that was that, that sustain them daily jesus said oh, i'm the true bread that came from heaven. The rock that was struck to provide refreshment for the masses. It was Christ, we're told. Speaking of him being struck through his death on the cross, it provides refreshment to our spirit. It's just wonderful. The, 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 um, the, the, the waters that were bitter, and they threw the wood in to, and, it, and, they went, and, they, and they went sweet. speaks of the cross. It's pointing towards the cross and it's thrown into the into the, the bitter lakes of our hearts and it turns sweet and life turns sweet. It, the whole thing was aiming towards his coming, his coming, his coming. All this things that actually happened were types and figures of Christ. What else have we got? We've got Psalm 2 where God promises the mysterious king, the nations of the world. We've got Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 where David prophesies in first person what it's like being crucified as Christ. Hundreds of years before he came, he's prophesying exactly what was going through Jesus' mind as he hung on the cross. We've got Psalm 110, where the Father promises a son he'll gather all his enemies under his feet. We've got Isaiah 9, where the Prince of Peace is promised. We've got Isaiah 11, where the Root of Jesse is promised. We've got Isaiah 42, where they're told the one is who is coming, he won't break a bruised reed, he won't... Snuff out a dim candle, he'll bring it back to, to life. We've, what else have we got? We got Isaiah 53, where we read that the father will bruise his son and, and, and his son will suffer so that we can be healed, all pointing towards you see anticipation, and then he comes. And Peter's writing this thinking, I don't believe I'm alive in these days. I can't believe that all of that, because remember he's living in the sense of big story, he's living in the sense of his history, he knows who he is, he's not this random person that was just born there, to live his little circle of life and die, he sees himself in the story, he's like, and I've been born at such a time, and he was manifested now for you, and he's supposed to make you go, wow, I could have been born millennia before, but God ordained that I should be born this side of Christ's appearing? This is amazing, what was just dim and promised and kind of there but a bit foggy. We now see Jesus of Nazareth. We know him. we've got the record. He comes and lives in our heart by his spirit. This is glorious. This is outrageous that God should allow me to live now. That's really what's going on there. Jesus Christ is the hinge, is the hinge on which the door of history turns. You see it even in the natural calendar, don't you? What year do we live in? 2008. Well, think about what you're saying there. What are you saying? 2008 AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Naturally speaking, it's remarkable this has happened. That In an unbelieving world, this has happened. It's God's huge signpost saying, see the significance of this. Every day when you write a check or you fill out the date somewhere, you are you are saying that even in the natural, Jesus Christ is the hinge on which the door of history turns. But how much more in the spiritual? How much more in the eternal? You've got to see this, it's glorious. You've got to see the wonder of the times that we are living in. So we live in, the eight th- we live in the last days, did you know that? Now some people get the wrong idea, they think the last days is the person walking around the sandwich balls and the end is nigh, yeah? And people think we've been saying that for thousands of years. I oh, know, listen, Peter in his second letter says, people will come in the last days, mockers, scoffers, saying, you're saying it's the last days, but you know, everything carries on the same. Peter says, listen you, it's because God's patient. <gasps> All right? He could have wrapped it up centuries ago, but he's wanting all to come to repentance. We live in the last days. What are the last days marked by? Peter again tells us in his sermon in Acts. In the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Hallelujah. That marks the last days. So dreams, prophecies, signs, wonders, miracles should be commonplace in church and in the world as the church go out there and proclaim the name of Jesus. It is the days that we live in. We live in the last days, the days of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's the days when all of Christ's enemies are being gathered under his feet. We live in the most exciting part of history anyone could live in. Because it was the last days when Peter was around. It's even last days now. Don't ask me how much, I just know it is. It's 2,000 years last days, you know? I mean, to be alive today is staggering. And it's wonderful and it's glorious. And then we're just going to read verse 21 and just wrap it up. i read 20 and 21 just so it makes sense. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so your faith and hope are in God. It's the gospel again. Here it is. You've already said that Peter. Why are you saying it again? Here's why. The apostles were very, very concerned about the facts of the gospel. Most people these days like it vague. Have you noticed that? constant, facts, facts, facts the life, the death, not just Peter Paul does it, John does it, all the apostles do it they're constantly putting it in, putting it in putting it in, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh Jesus, he's just like us, tended in every way but didn't sin, constantly, bang, bang putting it in, these are the facts, sinless fully man, fully God, died, really died wasn't a phantom, because lots of heresies came in which said oh he's a phantom, it wasn't really him, yeah really died, Jesus Christ was crucified constant, bang, 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 why, why why, because it's a big deal that's why. But people today, many people don't like it. They want a Buddha in the garden, crucifix around the neck, rosary hanging from the rear view mirror, and a lucky charm in the purse. Fully comp insurance. Surely one of them will work. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Hedge your bets. Come on. Surely one will... Or it's a bit more like Jason Bourne with his many passports. You think, one of them will get me through the pearly gates. One of them, sure, that one. No, okay, all right, that, try that one. No. It's like, well, you know, or we look, look, come on, God's, yeah, or, come on, when we get to the pearly gates, God's bigger. God's bigger than all these man-made religions. So as long as we tried our best, we'll get in. Listen. Deception. And I'm going to explain to you why. Then we're going to finish. Many people today will say this. They will say that clarity is divisive. If you're going to try and get really clear on the details, you're actually being divisive. Let's just ignore the detail and come together in love and unity. You can hear the music in the back, background, can't you? It's wonderful. It's moving, isn't it? Let's come together in love and unity. I met with a council worker recently and she was telling me how how, how Camden is pioneering in terms of multi-faith. Pioneering. I mean, just the ultimate. Yeah. So, this is fantastic. They had a meeting the other day and... All the contributors were allowed to read from their own scriptures, which is apparently really exciting. And I'm thinking, I don't get this. And what I'm realising as she's talking, I'm listening. I'm thinking, your mindset is completely different from mine. Utterly different. Why? Why? Why are you saying this thing? I think it's a celebration. I'm sitting there thinking it's naive. Why? How are we thinking so differently? What's going on here? you have got to look at this because it's a massive one for us today. Well. <laughs> There is no unity outside of Christ's centrality. Here's why, because Ephesians 1.10 says, God's ultimate aim is to unite all things in him. All right, So bring all things together in him as the head. That's God's aim. So any unity outside of that is a rogue unity. It's a blasphemous unity. It's a usurping unity. That's what it is. Um, God can't be mocked. You can't mock God. You can't just, ah, God will be alright about it. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know? He thinks like, I've got to be fine with it. Come on, lighten up. How do you know? He might not be. Yeah. Imagine that if you just kind of, you just spoke about me, you know, behind my back or something. You said, you know, imagine if Natalie comes to the and said, uh, "Steph's birthday's birthday soon. Um, I'd like to, I'd like, I think we should organise a water aerobics party for him. Right? Hold <laughs> on. Oh, <no. laughs> Doreen says, I don't, I don't think he'd really enjoy it, right? Why? Because she knows me. I wouldn't. <laughs> Natalie, <laughs> Natalie says, come on, lighten up. He'll love it. Doreen says, no, I know him. He really wouldn't want to do that for his birthday. And he says, oh, what's the matter with him? Is he some kind of, well, it's a bit narrow, isn't he? <laughs> well, what's that? I'm trying, to do something for, I'm trying to do something for him. You're telling him I not like it. What kind, of, what kind of husband have you got? He's like, well, he just wouldn't enjoy Walter, I mean, he just wouldn't enjoy it. He'd rather just, you know, I don't know, go and watch Prince Caspian. She's like, I'm going to do. Yeah? So, but what, Natalie there's been incredibly presumptuous. Isn't she? She doesn't really know him as well as Davina. She's just saying, what's the matter with him? And she begins to slander him because actually I'm not in on her thing. It's exactly the same. She's saying, well, God will let us all in. Well, no, he won't. What, do you mean? what sort of God is that? <laughs> you think, oh, it's God. That's what He decides. Wow, it's ridiculous. And the whole time, what we're saying is, is that we know better. Just give it some thought for a minute, please. The gospel is God's reply to the rebellion of the world. Okay? We've rebelled, we've sinned, we've kicked against Him. God has replied with the gospel. That is His reply. It is planned in detail from eternity. That one, listen please, that one person of the eternal Godhead, that God the Son, would actually become a man. I mean, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that to, God, God's reply is, they've so, they've so rebelled. There's only one answer, that God the Son, the eternal Son, that God who, God who is spirit, should actually, should actually, that the Son should say, yeah, I'm going to become a man with all the muck and all the vile stuff and all the limitation and all the vulnerability and all the temptation, I'm going to become a man. Right? Why? Because we're so lost and we're so helpless and all of our self-help is so pathetic that only God can break in and save us through becoming a man. I'm going to do that and he's going to live in our stead and withstand every temptation that comes his way. Even, even sins of the mind and heart, withstand every one. Which means getting up early when it's dark most mornings to go and plead with the Father, fill me with your spirit for today, because every day is huge. And to totally walk the tightrope of total wisdom, being able to answer the Pharisees, being able to escape from death attempts at the, right, at the, at the wrong time because it wasn't his time yet. and Just total wisdom the whole way through. And then what reward does he get? He gets betrayed, he gets arrested, and he gets crucified. And that's why he came. You think, what? This is, this is a huge deal to God, this message. This is a massive deal to God. You can't just sidestep it. You can't just brush it under the carpet. You can't just dodge it. You can't say, oh, well, come on, let's just all come together. Well, let's just come, let's all come together in the name of love. Oh, my goodness. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? The son of God had to lay down his perfect, eternal life. Had to be abandoned and rejected for our sin. How can you even suggest such a thing? It's the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's the message of life. It's God's gospel. And you know what God requires for us more than anything else is to be faithful to the gospel. To be faithful in that we live gospel lives and that we preach the gospel faithfully. And if people don't like it, so be it. God loves it. He loves his gospel. He loves his gospel. It was his way of, in, in himself, completely dealing with the human problem. So that, so that at the cross, Jesus Christ was punished for every sin that you ever did. So that you could be totally forgiven and totally reconciled to God. No bad feeling in the air. No, no, so you can come in, but no, none of that. Totally welcomed as a child and filled with his spirit and a co-heir with him forever. What grace is that? What grace? This is the gospel this is God's gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. Anything else is the utter insult to God. God the Father has exalted his son and given him the highest name. And he's very, very jealous about his son. That's why we worship him. Amen? <laughs> Along with all of heaven. Now many thousands have given their life for this. Many thousands. Many, many thousands. But our age is so bankrupt in truth that we can't really understand it. But we need to come to that, back to that place well, we say, I'm willing to die for this. I will die for this message. We need God put that in me. God put that in me. So that when the time comes, if it does, I will say, I can do no else. I can do no else. It's like Polycarp, the, one of the early fathers who was martyred, martyred at about age 90. They said, just deny, just deny. He said, I've followed him I don't know how many years. He said, he's never done me any wrong. How can I, how can I deny? Just loved. And then was sent to the lions. You know, Martin Luther, here I stand. Here I stand, I can do no more. Here I stand. God put that in us. God put that in us. He's worthy. I'll read those two verses again. And then we will sing. I want us to be shaped by apostolic priority, apostolic truth. Shaped by it. And if we ever find it laborious, we don't say this because it's boring. We say something's wrong with me. God, renew me again. So I don't skate over this, but I love it. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Should we stand?